This week, uh, for one of my, I call it my organic matter factoids, I'm going to tell you a little story, and it is about nature. It's kind of interesting. It's something I've been interested in really all my life, but it's kind of coming to uh, the head of a lot of people are learning things like this they've never even been aware of before. San Francisco International Airport is the seventh busiest airport in the United States. In a typical year, approximately 55 million people pass through the San Francisco airport on their way to destinations throughout North America and throughout the world. At some point during their journey to or from the terminals, each one of those people will pass by a seemingly unremarkable 180-acre piece of land, surrounded on all sides by highways and train tracks. The soggy and overgrown vacant lot just isn't home to rows of power lines. It's also home to the world's largest population of a beautiful and highly endangered species, the San Francisco garter snake. Now, why do I bring that up? You'll see. According to a recent study conducted by the U.S. Geological Survey, there are approximately 1,300 San Francisco garter snakes at the airport property. That's just west of Bay Shore. The greatest concentration of these snakes ever recorded as far as we know. Conservationists have long known that the San Francisco garter snake is really in trouble. In fact, it landed on the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's very first endangered species list, which was published all the way back in 1967. Which is coincidence for me because that's the year I began my college studies and was already very, very interested in herpetology. Over the years, agricultural, commercial, and urban development have destroyed much of the wetlands habitat as well as much of its primary food source. This snake, folks, lives primarily, almost exclusively on California red-legged frogs. The snakes have also been a popular target, unfortunately, for poachers and collectors. Since 2008, SFO has been working with the United States Fish and Wildlife Service on a recovery strategy for the species. Together, they've made enhancements to the west of Bayshore habitat, including building rain-fed ponds and deepening existing wetlands. They've also added fences to protect habitat and prevent illegal collection. But low population counts at other locations means the recovery for this particular snake, the San Francisco garter snake, is far from over. Now, why should we care? That's the question. Well, the reason is this snake and other animals that we watch are called indicator species. They show us something's not right with the environment. We've changed it. Something has happened that they no longer can thrive there. They may survive in smaller numbers, but they don't thrive. There's a number of amphibians that we now use as trigger species indicating things are not right. And of course, the coral reefs are another ideal example. So as we approach over 8 billion of us on earth, these little indicators, if we will pay attention, will guide us the directions we need to keep this planet healthy and able to support Not only the 8 billion of us that are going to be here, and that is inevitable, folks, that's not a guess, but also everything on the planet that indirectly supports what we now call human existence. If we don't pay attention now, 
When it gets to the point that we do really realize the situation, the time it will take to correct it, to get it back to quote-unquote normal, will be much, much longer than it took us to ruin it. For a change in subject here, but of interest to me all the time, so I look every week to one of my science sources. This happens to be from Sandia Labs news releases. If you know where Sandia National Laboratories is. And, and it's another update. It's part of, I try to share these every few weeks. And it's on the beginning. It's, it's where we know we've got to go. The sooner the better and the faster the better. But it's going in that direction really, really, really faster than scientists even realized it might. Researchers at Sandia National Laboratories have designed a new class of molten sodium batteries for grid-scale energy storage. The new battery design was shared in a paper published in July in the Scientific Journal of Cell Reports Physical Science. There's a journal for everything if you want to go looking for it, folks. Molten sodium batteries have been used for many years to store energy from renewable sources such as solar panels and wind turbines. However, commercially available molten sodium batteries called sodium sulfur batteries typically operate at very high temperatures, 520 to 650 degrees. Sandia's new molten sodium ion battery operates at a much lower temperature, around 230 degrees Fahrenheit instead. Big savings in energy right there, folks. There's a whole cascading cost savings that comes along with lowering the battery temperature. You can use less expensive materials, the batteries need less insulation, and the wiring that connects all of the batteries can be a lot thinner. However, the battery chemistry that works at 550 degrees just doesn't work very well at 230 degrees. Among the major innovations that allowed the lower operating temperature was the development of what is now called a catholite. A catholite is just a liquid mixture of two different kinds of salts. I'll give them to you. They were probably out of our realm here. But in this case, it's sodium iodide and gallium chloride. Unlike lithium-ion batteries, these batteries are liquid on two sides. They're all liquid. That means that they don't have to deal with the issues like the material undergoing a bunch of phase changes or falling apart. It's all liquid. Basically, these liquid-based batteries don't have as limited a lifetime as do many other batteries. In other words, they last a lot longer. In fact, these batteries are already known to have at least a 15-year useful life, significantly longer than standard lead-acid batteries for sure, even lithium-ion batteries. A coincidence, because of COVID-19 pandemic, they had to pause the experiment for a few months, and they let these molten sodium and catholite batteries cool to room temperature and freeze. What was amazing, though, was when they warmed them back up, they still worked fine. This means, this is where it comes touching me since I'm at heart, still a Texan, that if we had these installed in Texas, like this last big freeze, this unbelievable winter that we had last February, the sodium iodide batteries could be used and then allowed to cool until frozen. Once the disruption was over, they could be warmed up, recharged, and returned to normal operation without a lengthy or costly startup process and without degradation of the battery's internal chemistry. A really lucky find. Quote one of the scientists working on the project. 
This is the first demonstration of long-term stable cycling of a low-temperature molten sodium battery. The magic of what we've put together is that we've identified salt chemistries and electrochemistries that allow us to operate effectively at much lower temperatures. This low-temperature sodium iodide configuration is sort of a reinvention of what it means to have a molten sodium battery, but at a lower cost and in a higher efficiency rating. Just a little background because sometimes people ask where I get all the information that I go digging out. Sandia National Laboratories is a multi-mission laboratory operated by the National Technology and Engineering Solutions of Sandia LLC. It's actually a wholly owned subsidiary of Honeywell, which you all know about, Honeywell International, and works with the U.S. Department of Energy's National Nuclear Security Administration. That's what Sandia Peak's all about. This paper came out of their facilities in Albuquerque, New Mexico, but they also have another big facility. I think it's out in Livermore, California. So anyway, sometimes people ask, I I always try to only get facts to you folks, and I'm so tired of everything you see on TV. I don't care which side you're on. They never back up the facts. They never give you where the information came from. They just kind of make up stuff, and I guess we're just supposed to believe them. Well, as I get older, I'm a little bit more skeptical. So when I get information to you on this radio show, whether you get it from podcast or you get it on open air from the people that broadcast it, it's as good a fact as I can find at the time. And the other thing is, I'm not a scientist when I pretend to be one. If you change something and something does change, you have to come back and change it. Science is an ever-moving target. It's not black and white. It's gray. You practice science, maybe somewhat like doctors, practice medicine. We're always learning something every day, and I make every effort to make whatever we're learning to be as honest and as forthright as I can. Now let's take a couple minutes just to throw in a little of what I call my factoids again, but this time it's going to be about biodiversity in our agriculture. As I've mentioned before, the organic food industry is one of the fastest growing agricultural segments here in the United States. According to the Organic Trade Association, U.S. organic sales reached $61.9 billion, and that's back in 2020, so that's the most update I can find. A jump of more than 12% in just one year, and that was even with the pandemic going on. Organic food does have many benefits. Organic food is free of antibiotics, growth hormones, and GMOs, and is grown using fewer pesticides and fewer chemistries. Organic farming is better for the environment by reducing pollution, conserving water, reducing soil erosion, increasing soil fertility, and uses less energy. And it's also better for the health of nearby wildlife, as well as the people who live close to the farms themselves. But when it comes to promoting biodiversity in agriculture, is organic farming the only alternative to conventional agriculture? It turns out it's probably not, at least according to a new study recently published in the journal Trends in Ecology and Evolution. According to an international research team led by the University of Gutenberg in Germany, A landscape mosaic of natural habitats and small-scale and diverse cultivated areas is the key to promoting biodiversity on a large scale. According to the research teams, areas cultivated to organic standards have about a third more species, but don't reach the yield 
level of conventional farming overall. This means that more land would need to be cultivated organically in order to produce the same amount of food and to maintain the biodiversity. But as larger areas are cultivated, then the advantages of biodiversity begin to disappear. So smaller, more organically grown is better, but it will take more overall landscape to do so. Landscapes with small fields, long edges, high crop diversity, and at least 20% near some form of natural habitat can promote biodiversity significantly more than just pure mass organic farm certifications do. And that just makes sense, folks. We, we do need to grow huge areas of food because there's going to be a lot of us. But we can be far more efficient and still be safe for our environment if we do it properly. Thanks for staying tuned to Organic Matters. <music> <music>